Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor John Storworthy, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at Oxford University and Fellow of Wolfson College, Oxford, and Dr. Jane Potter of Oxford Brookes University, will be discussing the lives of Ivor Gurney and Wilfred Owen, two great war poets whose distinctive and moving voices of the English underclass reflected the disparate experiences of ordinary soldiers in war. I come first with um, a slight proviso. You've managed to come on an evening where you have two generations of lectures and two styles of lecturing. Um, by far the better and more erudite will be um, my former supervisor, John Stallworthy's lecture at the end. Um, and you can see me as the kind of warm-up backed with my PowerPoint. John does not need PowerPoint. I do. <laughs> um, I can't even probably write my shopping list without PowerPoint. So again, see me as the warm-up back to the main event in a little bit. Um, I'm going to be speaking about Ivor Gurney, um, part of our collection um, that um, we've just published with Penguin. And to say a little bit about his life, show you some of his poems. Can I just ask, first of all, how many have heard of Ivor Gurney? Oh, good number. Yay, hooray, good. Um, how many know his poems well? Oh, phew, thank goodness for that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad some people do. Um, and I'm delighted to see that there's a new film, so that's quite um, wonderful. Um, but Ivor Gurney is known both as a musician and as a poet. Um, just like his contemporaries with, um, if I can use the um, inelegant metaphor, with feet in other artistic camps, um, Isaac Rosenberg, who is known as a painter as well as a poet, Blunden and Sassoon, who are known as memoirists as well as poets. Um, Gurney's music and his poetry inform the other. Um, musical allusions and direct references um, abound in his poetry, both um, directly and sort of indirectly. This is Bach in the Century. Watching the dark, my spirit rose in flood on that most dearest prelude of my delight. The low-lying mist lifted its hood. The October stars showed nobly in clear night. When I return and to real music making and play that prelude, how will it happen then? Shall I feel as I felt a century hardly waking with a dull sense of no man's land again? Um, and these allusions, the... Um, the allusions to poetry, to music in his poetry are just as compelling um, as references to his beloved Oxford, or Gloucestershire, which we're, I will show you a bit about in a minute. He's perhaps, despite people's um, hands, probably the less well-known of the three um, that feature in John's and my edition. Ivor Gurney, however, does have a devoted following particularly amongst musicologists and singers, and his work regular, regularly featured in is featured in events like the Three Choirs Festival and in recordings of pastoral song. And so I, what, what I want to highlight in this talk is the mixture of Gurney's dual preoccupations of music and Gloucestershire in his war poetry. Ivor Bertie Gurney was born on the 28th of August, 1890, at 3 Queen Street, Gloucester, the son of David Gurney, a tailor, and his wife, Frances Lugg. Trained in music and singing from an early age, he joined the choir of All Saints Church, Gloucester, at the age of nine. Gurney won a place then at Gloucester Cathedral um, as a chorister and attended King's School, where he also learned to play the organ. 
He begins to write music in 1904. Um, at the same year, he sang with Madame Albani at the Three Choirs Festival. Um, and around this time, he develops a close grouping of friends and advisors that would, that would stay with him. Canon Alfred Cheeseman, who is also his godfather, Margaret and Emily Hunt, um, Herbert Howells, F.W. Harvey, and John Haynes. He meets his most significant champion, however, um, when he takes up his composition scholarship at the Royal College of Music in London, Marion Scott. Um, when Ivor Gurney swept into the Royal College of Music, as Pamela Blevins, um, one of Gurney's biographers, has said, in 1911, riding on a wave of self-confidence and pride, Scott was an established figure who nevertheless appreciated the individuality more than most and took to the taciturn, distant young man. Scott, 13 years Gurney Sr., in a letter recalls how, for one thing, the boy was wearing a dark, a, a thick, sorry, it should be thick, dark blue Severn Pilot's coat, more suggestive of an out-of-door life than the composition lesson with Sir Charles Stanford, for which, by the manuscript tucked under his arm, he was clearly bound. But what struck me more was the look of latent force in him, the fine head with its profusion of light brown hair, not too well brushed, and the eyes behind their spectacles were of the mixed coloring, in Gurney's case, hazel, gray, green, and agate, which Erasmus once said was regarded by the English as denoting genius. This, I said to myself, must be the new composition scholar from Gloucester, whom they call Schubert. Though he continues with his music composition, he sets five Elizabethan sonnets to music, what he called the Elizas, in 1913. This year is also significant, for it's when Gurney begins to write poetry seriously. Um, but equally, this is also the year in which he is diagnosed with neurasthenia and returns to Gloucester to recuperate. Gurney's mental problems, therefore, were not caused by the war on the outbreak um, in 1914 or by his um, military service. He volunteers for military service straight away, but is rejected because of his eyesight, his poor eyesight. When he volunteers again in February of 1915, he is accepted and drafted into the 5th Gloucestershire Reserve, Gloucester Reserve Battalion, the second to the fifth Gloucesters. While returning, well, in training in England, he begins to send Marion Scott his poems, a practice he would continue throughout the war and after, and which has thankfully preserved his work. For as Gurney wrote to her, these are some of the letters, an image of the letters, which are from the First World War Poetry Digital Archive, which is a tremendous resource for people generally interested in the war, but also I know we've got a lot of um, students doing... Um, um, there are lessons in this, what, A-levels, AS-levels. Um, great resource for looking at images of manuscripts, seeing the different versions. Um, and this is just one example of the letter, and you can see the letter and then enclose the Ballad of the Three Spectres, one of Gurney's more famous poems. But it was very useful that he did this, because he writes to Scott, I never keep a copy of these things. I get them off my chest, and I send them to you. He saw action on the Western Front with the Gloucesters, all the while writing the poems that would make up his two volumes, again which Marion Scott um, ushered through publication, Severn and Psalm and War's Embers, 
um, Severn and Somme published in 1917, and Moore's Embers in 1919. And I was just looking on the internet today, and a, uh, the copy of Severn and Somme with its just jacket recently sold for 380 pounds at an auction in London, which I'm surprised is actually that low. <laughs> it seems to me they are very, very scarce editions. If you ever see these, you must snap them up. Well, perhaps not for 300 pounds, but if you ever get tucked away in a bookshop somewhere, um, they're very valuable. Gurney was gassed at Saint-Julien in September of 1917 and was then admitted to Edinburgh War Hospital, Bangor, where he was treated by and falls in love with Annie Drummond, who was a nurse, a love that was unrequited. He writes about her in his poem, War Books, um, where he says, love came sweet in hospital, and also in this one, photographs to two Scots lads. But once, oh, why did he keep that bitter token of a dead love? That boy who suddenly moved, she showed me, his eyes wet, his low talk broken, a girl who better had not been beloved. Although sent on a signaling course, Gurney continued to suffer from the effects of gas and increasing mental delusions in which he heard voices telling him to commit suicide. He sent to um, Lord Darby's War Hospital in Warrington and says very distressing letters to Marion Scott at one point, basically saying, I'm going to commit suicide. And she rushes up from London um, to try and sort him out. He, he doesn't. He, they find him standing by the side of a river. Um, but clearly very, very distressed. Um, he is discharged from the army in October 1918 on a pension of six shillings and sixpence a week and returns to Glosser to work in an, an ammunitions factory. But his erratic behavior continues to worry his family. He does return to the Royal College of Music in 1919 to be taught by Ray von Williams and throughout 1920 moves in literary circles and gets to know people like Edmund Blunden, who would be significant um, in his, um, uh, in, throughout the 1920s for Gurney. Um, increasingly, though, he suffers from nerves and an inability to write. Um, he walks long and long distances. He um, will go on sort of eating binges where he eats loads and loads of cream cakes um, and then goes and doesn't eat anything for ages. Um, and it's just very, very distressing behavior. Pamela Blevins, who's, um, as I said, wrote the dual biography of Scott and Gurney, um, you know, calls it symptomatic of what we would now call bipolar disorder. But the fact that he was also hearing voices was um, certainly signs of schizophrenia. Um, his third volume, uh, to compound this, of course, his third volume of poetry is rejected twice by Sidgwick and Jackson, who published his first two volumes. And he asks for help from pu for publishers, um, from, with publishers from Edward Marsh and, of course, from Blunden, um, which is an example of this letter um, where he says, if Sid at the bottom, um, sorry, I can use this pointer. That's exciting. Um, oops. There we go. Um, here. If uh, Sid, you confuse my new book, is there any um, publishers? Um, is there any publishers it is to try and write to instead? Some of the best things I have done would be in it, um, and nothing really amateurish. Um, one potential um, on this subject would um, um, oblige. One prospect on this would oblige. So he, he's trying to reestablish a sort of publishing career, but to, to little effect. Um, by 1922, he's so disturbed, and at one point is in his brother, he's living with his brother um, and threatens to shoot himself with a gun through the service revolver. Um, and he's had to 
had to be taken away. Um, he is eventually um, committed, um, certified insane, and committed to Barnwood House Asylum, um, a private asylum near Gloucester, and then finally to um, the City of London Mental Hospital in Dartford, where um, he spends the rest of his life. Um, but what's significant is even in his asylum years, he continues to write poems and revise old ones. His annotated copies of Severn and Psalm and War's Embers are just such, such examples. And you can see here from um, War's Embers, again, from the digital archive, um, where he started new stanzas. I won't try and read them out. <laughs> um, but it does complicate things for editors, and it did complicate it for us, and well, for me and John, John trying to decide what versions of Gurney's poetry to include. Um, and so you can see him in later years revising. Um, this is, will be the insertion of these lines. The other thing that he does that is quite interesting, um, as he does with Severn and Psalm, is he puts the places where he remembers that he wrote them, Chelmsford there. Um, so he's annotated these two editions, and they're quite amazing to look at. So he continues to do this, and he continues to write new poems. His poems appear fairly regularly in print, particularly in the London Mercury, which I'll hand around if anyone wants to see it, um, um, whose editor, J.C. Squire, was one of his great champions um, throughout this period. Um, and this is an edition from 1934 with six of Gurney's poems. So this is towards the end of his life. Um, and Marion Scott also um, prepared a typescript in 1928, which she wanted to submit to Gallant's um, as another edition, but... She never did that. Project never came to fruition. But again, in the archive are these typescripts and plans for new publications. Marion Scott saw um, Gurney as um, it was really her mission to try and keep um, his manuscripts as safe as possible to keep his work alive. Yet the health problems, physical and emotional, um, that she endured throughout her life were no doubt exacerbated by what Pamela Blevins calls her black sorrow over Ira Gurney. Indeed, Scott made many personal sacrifices for him. For in addition to financially contributing to his care and negotiating the minefield of his family relationships, she, quote, often devoted more time to Ira's poetry and music than to her own creative endeavors. And I think Blevins is to be congratulated for bringing Marion Scott out of the sort of um, shadow of um, Gurney and Herbert Howells, who she also championed to indicate um, her scholarship as a music scholar. Um, Gurney's musical work, too, was published and performed mainly through the efforts of Scott and Gerard Finsey, although that relationship between those two was quite fraught at times, um, indeed very fractious, with Finsey criticizing her as an old maid. He called her this fragile fool, possessive of Gurney's life, work, and reputation. Um, Finzi, although instrumental in pr promoting Gurney's music, failed to appreciate both Scott's history with Gurney and her own very busy personal and professional life when she sort of wouldn't answer his questions about this poem or that publication or whatever. Um, shortly after Gurney's death, though, a special issue of Music and Letters was devoted to him. The oft-told story of how Gurney was, e was too ill even to unwrap the proofs um, the package that the proofs were contained in 
has been challenged by newly discovered evidence in the Gloucester archives, thanks to Philip, Car Philip Lancaster's wonderful cataloging, um, in which he's found that the letter that Marion Scott enclosed with the proofs um, was actually used by Gurney to reply to her. Um, and as I said, Philip Lancaster has cataloged all the material in the Gurney archives, essentially identifies three periods in Gurney's work. The war, 1914 to October 1918, um, a period of sort of new departure of his writing from November 1918 to September 1922, and 19, um, sept uh, September 1922 to 1926, the asylum poems. One poem from um, 1929, um, as, as well as other various poems, are kind of all over the archive, which have now been cataloged fully. Gurney wrote a large number of essays, but a great deal of work, um, chamber music, symphonies, and poems from 1926, and possibly later, was destroyed by Joy Fincy about 1958 during her cataloging of the poems after her husband's death because it was claimed these were incoherent and useless. Um, Gerald believe, Finzi believed that there were parts of Gurney's writing that he said, quote, it would be better for them not to be published, which is a shame. Um, John and I are only um, one of a number, uh, two of a number of Gurney's subsequent editors, um, Edmund Blunden, Leonard Clark, P.J. Kavanaugh, R.K.R. Thornton, and George Walter. And we owe much to sort of their previous scholarship in this edition. But what of Gurney's poems themselves? I said at the beginning that music in Gloucestershire are their driving forces and their most resonant illusions. Tim Kendall calls Gurney's um, a, me a memorial poetry, and his wartime poems dwell, quote, on the Gloucestershire landscapes to sustain the soldiers through memory, end quote. And we can see this even from a selection of titles um, from Gurney's output. Eep Minsterworth, Crickley Hill, Valley Farm, I Saw England, July Night. These are contrasted with other poems who take the names of towns on the Western Front, Lavanti, near Vermont, Riesbuel, towards Lillers. Yearning for the home countryside is evident in poems such as Yesterday Lost, What Things I Have Missed Today I Know Very Well, but the seeing of them each new time is miracle. Nothing between Breeden and Dursley has any day yesterday's precise, unpraised grace. The changed light or curve changed mistily, coppice, now bowl cut, yesterday's mystery. A sense of mornings once seen, forever gone, its own forever, alive, dead, and my possession. Crickly Hill, again, talking of orcus, trefoil, harebells, not all day, high above Gloucester and the Severn Plain and the villages hidden by hedges, wonderful, in late May. And then the contrast with the scene um, in France. In Song, which is one of the ones that um, has been set to music, um, only the wanderer knows England's graces, or can anew see clear familiar faces. And who loves joy as he that dwells in shadows? Do not forget me quite, O Severn Meadows. And in Eat Minsterworth, which is dedicated to F.W. Harvey, um, his friend, as I said, from Gloucester um, growing up, who he thought had been killed in action or was missing, um, and then he discovers later is actually a prisoner of war in Germany. And he does survive the war 
Um, but as a kind of elegy to this, um, this sort of familiar, the beloved homeland to sustain this lost son, essentially. Thick lie in Gloucestershire orchards now, orchards now, apples the severn wind with rough play tore from the tossing branches and left behind leaves strewn on pastures, blown in hedges and by the roadway lined. To think how in some German prison a boy lies with whom I might have taken joy full-hearted, hearing the great boom of autumn, watching the fire, talking of books in the half-gloom. O wind of Ypres and of Severn, riot there also, and tell of comrades safe returned, home-keeping music and autumn smell, comfort blow him and friendly greeting, hearten him, wish him well. In De Profundis, another poem, Gurney describes how war in war we have left out old inheritances, our paradise behind, and imagine times when this fear, the mire of the trenches, and the guns that bark night long will no longer mar his thousand thoughts of home. And the Ballad of the Three, three Spectres as well, similarly, um, as I went up to Ovilers, in mud and water cold to the knee, there went three jeering, fleering specters that walked abreast and talked of me. Um, and it's a dialogue with these three different specters, but perhaps the most loneliest one um, is the one that survives. Though bitter the word of these first twain, first twain curses the third spat venomously, he'll stay untouched till the war's last dawning, then live one hour of agony. Liars the first two were, behold me at sloping arms by one, two, three, waiting the time I shall discover whether the third spake verity, which is essentially Gurney's fate. And to his love, this juxtaposition of the Gloucester, Gloucestershire countryside really comes into its own with the horrors of the Western Front. In many ways, as John will show you, that... Um, Wilfred Owen's poetry is very graphic about the horrors of the trenches, the horrors of the Western Front. Similarly, Isaac Rosenberg's. Gurney's is a much quieter kind of horror in a way. It's, it's a much more restrained one, but no less terrifying. Um, and this poem, I think, really indicates that. It's in four, four stanzas, and this is the first two. He is gone, and all our plans are useless indeed. We'll walk no more on Cotswold, where the sheep feed quietly and take no heed. His body that was so quick is not as you knew it on Severn River. Under the blue, driving our, sm our small boat through. You would not know him now, but still he died nobly. So cover him over with violets of pride, purple from Severn side. Cover him, cover him soon. And with the thick, thick set masses of memoried flowers, hide that red, wet thing I must somehow forget. So the building up of the suspense that we see here, um, the opening of the first two stanzas, he is gone um, with a kind of nostalgia for this peaceful world that once existed, um, walking no more on Cotswold. Um, but then the ominous lines, his body that was so quick is not as you knew it. And you can see the building tension um, you would not know him now. 
Um, and all the tranquility that he's built up from the beginning is shattered in that final stanza um, with calls to cover, cover this thing quick. Um, and it's a subtly developed horror that we see. So a much more restrained version, but as I said, I think no less terrifying. The silent one similarly with the lines, opens with the lines in the sort of open sentence. Who died on the wires and hung there one of two? For who is hour of life had chattered through infinite lovely chatter of Buck's accent, yet laced on broken wires, stepped over and went, a noble fool, faithful to his stripes, and ended. But I, weak, hungry, and willing only for the chance of line, to fight in the line, lay down under unbroken wires, and saw the flashes, and kept unshaken. Till the politest voice, a finicking accent, said, Do you think you might crawl through there? There, there's a hole. In the afraid darkness shot at, I smiled, as politely replied, I'm afraid not, sir. There was no hole, no way to be seen. Nothing but chance of death, after fearing of clothes kept flat, and watched the darkness, hearing bullets whizzing, and thought of music, and swore deep heart's oaths, polite to God, and retreated and came on again, and retreated again, and a second time faced the screen. And this sort of near, this impossibility of ever actually doing this mission, that the person, the, 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 the person with infinite lovely chatter of Buck's accent is essentially a suicide mission, and this finicky accent of, of the officer who um, just provides this sort of also kind of humorous element to it, but also quite um, um, appalling. Suffering, particularly mental suffering, is not surprisingly, um, surprisingly um, a major theme in Gurney's poetry. Verbal repetition contributes to the pathos of pain, um, a poem that echoes the suffering catalogs, cataloged in such Old Testament books as Job and the Psalms. The lines, pain, pain, continual, pain unending, and gray monotony lending weight to the gray skies, gray mud, where goes an army of gray bedrenched scarecrows in rows, makes vivid the dementia and torment of those men um, broken, shrieking even to hear a gun. Gurney ends his poem with the Job-like, the amazed heart cries angrily out on God. In Strange Hells, we have an echo of Wilfred Owen's mental cases with his line, these are the men whose minds the dead have ravished. These are the these, there are strange hells within the minds war made, not so often, not so humiliatingly afraid as one would have expected, the racket and fear guns made. One hell the Gloucester soldiers they quite put out, their first bombardment, when in combined shout of fury, guns aligned, they ducked lower their heads and sang with diaphragms, fixed beyond all dreads, that tin and stretch wire tinkle, that blither of tune. Après la guerre finie, till all hell had come down. Twelve-inch, six-inch, and eighteen-pounders hammering hell's thunders. Where are they now? On state doles, or showing shop patterns, or walking to town, sore in borrowed tatterns, or begged. Some civic routine one never learns. The heart burns, but has to keep out of face, 
how heart burns. And as Tim Kendall has noted, this irregular sonnet turns from the camaraderie and courage of the Gloucestershire Regiment in the trenches to a far less heroic post-war fate. And of course, knowing Gurney's own post-war fate um, gives this poem an even greater poignancy. The same is true of the plaintive cry in the poem Farewell. Dear battalion, the dead of you would not have let your comrade be so long prey for the unquiet black evil of the unspoken and concealed pit. You would have made me safe, dead or free, happy alive. And an appeal for death. To be let rest in mercy, to know an end of surety, death's quite surest a friend, and what men would not let calm nature mend. And poem for end. So the last poem is laid flat in its place, and quickly with crucifix corner leaves from my face Elizabethans and night-working thoughts of such grace, allusions to his previous poems, Crickly Hill, Crucifix Corner, perhaps even the Elizas, his compositions, and all the dawns that my set thoughts knew to making, or Crickly Dust that the beech leaves stirred to shaking are put aside. There is a book ended, heart aching. And again the cry to his comrades. It is near to Saint, the living and the dead would say. Have they ended it? What has happened to Gurney? And along the leaf-strewed roads of France, many brown shades, that is ghosts, will go, recalling singing and a comrade for whom they also had hoped well. His honor, his honor them had happier made. And Bernard Bergonzi, um, in his book Heroes Twilight, um, called Gurney one of the saddest casualties of the war. And P.J. Kavanagh argues that as far as, he, um, as far as Gurney was concerned, he had no present, which is why the past is so present in his poems, why he returns to the past continually. The poignancy of Helen Thomas's visit to Gurney compounds this impression. Um, Helen Thomas, the widow of Edward Thomas, um, went to visit Ivor Gurney towards the end of his life in the asylum in Dartford. Um, and she writes of this very movingly in her memoirs. We were met by a tall, gaunt, disheveled man, clad in pajamas and dressing gown, to whom Miss Scott introduced me. He gazed with an intense stare into my face and took me silently by the hand. Then I gave him the flowers which he took with the same deeply moving intensity and silence. He then said, you are Helen, Edward's wife, and Edward is dead. And I said, yes, let us talk of him. And on subsequent visits, um, Helen Thomas brings, um, sees him on a number of different occasions. And on one occasion, one of the last occasions that she sees him, she brings him maps that belong to Edward Thomas. Um, Edward Thomas, like Arver Gurney, was an inveterate walker um, and loved the countryside. Um, and his poems, too, are infused with um, the countryside of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. So she brings the maps, and at one point she describes... Um, with our fingers, we trace the lanes and byways and villages of which Ivor Gurney knew every step and over which Edward has also walked. He had Edward as his companion in this strange perambulation, 
and he was utterly happy. And Ivor Gurney dies um, in 1937, um, again in the asylum, never having seen his beloved Gloucestershire again. But he leaves behind, thanks to the efforts of his friends like Marion Scott and others, and London, um, a wealth of material which, as I said, has now just finally been catalogued by Philip Lancaster um, and Tim Kendall at Gloucestershire, at the Gloucester Archives. And we actually eagerly await um, their complete poetry, which will be published by OUP. And this new edition will bring together for the first time all of, of Gurney's poems um, in an authoritative edition. And ours is only a snapshot of his war poems. And we hope that this larger edition, along with the new biography that's being written by Kate Kennedy, will further our knowledge and understanding of Gurney, who I think has been neglected somewhat. Um, and as I said, Gerald Finzi had slight, some problems with editing Gurney's manuscripts or going through them and finding queer and odd things. And I'll end with his quote, though, because actually I've um, not been as kind on Finzi as I perhaps should have. Um, but this quote reminded me of, of our own process of going through Gurney's poems and trying to figure out um, different um, versions, what came first, the different changes, how do we make those decisions. And Finzi says, the sorting has been even more difficult than I expected chiefly because there is comparatively little one can really be sure is bad. Even the late 1925 asylum songs, though they get more and more involved, have a curious coherence, which makes it difficult to know whether they are really all really over the border. I think the eventual difficulty in editing the, the later gurney may be great. A neat mind could smooth away the queerness. Yet time and familiarity will show something not so mistaken after all about the queer and odd things. So I hope you do some more reading of Gurney, and I'll take some questions. Thank you. Well, I can't possibly um, emulate Jane's expertise with the past point. Um, but just, just to, if I may end where she began with the, the question about Rosenberg, um, she and I were greatly helped and greatly instructed by um, our friend Vivian Noakes, who is the great, was the great uh, Rosenberg scholar who died of cancer about six months ago, perhaps. And um, had she been alive, she might have been here today to speak about Rosenberg, which she would have done with a greater authority, certainly, than I can speak about, um, about Owen, and perhaps comparable with what Jane could say. But alas, she has gone. But um, uh, if you're interested in Rosenberg, as clearly many of you will be, um, she, Vivian left two editions of Rosenberg, and our little selection is a very sort of minor fragment um, of his whole oeuvre. And as Jane said, he was both a painter uh, and a poet, and um, uh, his work is really worth studying. And the poems and the letters you can find in Vivian's edition, um, and his paintings, many of them are in the world's great galleries, um, and a previous edition of the poems, edited by Ian Parsons, has quite a generous selection of uh, 
uh, Rosenberg's paintings, um, which are um, very striking indeed. Let's turn then to Owen. In the long history of English literature, there have been many notable literary encounters. Keats and Coleridge in 1819, Charlotte Bronte and Thackeray in 1849, Oscar Wilde uh, wearing satin breeches, and Walt Whitman not wearing satin breeches in 1882, um, Virginia Woolf and Thomas Hardy in 1926. But none of these proved as important to the future of literature as one to be remembered uh, in a week ending with the 97th anniversary of the armistice of 1914, the meeting of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. When the second lieutenant knocked on the door of Captain Sassoon, there could be, to all outward appearances, uh, no two men less alike. Whereas Sassoon, six years older and almost a foot taller, um, came from a rich and privileged background and had been educated at a public school, Owen had been brought up in the back streets of Birkenhead and Shrewsbury. His mother, unlike Sassoon's, who was a great socialite, Owen's mother was very devout, and for a time her piety was shared by her eldest and, it must be said, her favourite son. Whenever in those years they were apart, in letter after letter, uh, written on Sundays always, he would give her the text of the day's sermon, uh, details of the hymns that were sung, and would frequently end with a pious postscript. It has to be said that Wilfred Owen, at that point, was rather a priggish young man. His early preoccupation with religion for a time equaled and even exceeded his preoccupation with poetry, particularly the poetry of Keats, culminating in what was known to the family as Wilfred's Church. This is splendidly described in his brother Harold's uh, three-volume memoir, Journey from Obscurity. Aided and encouraged by my mother, Harold writes, Wilfred would, on Sunday evenings, arrange our small sitting room to represent a church. The table would be moved away, all available chairs collected and arranged for pews. An armchair turned backwards, making a pulpit and lectern. At first it was all very simple, but as his enthusiasm grew and his imagination took wing, it became more and more elaborate. And my mother was kept busy making altar cloths, stoles, and a perfectly fashioned small linen surplice, all most beautifully worked, for she was a superb needlewoman. Finally, she made a mitre. <laughs> Wilfred would spend a long time arranging the room, after which he would robe himself, and looking very priest-like in his surplice and mitre, would call us in to form the congregation. He would then conduct a complete evening service, um, uh, concluding with a remarkable uh, sermon, uh, 
that he'd prepared with great care and thought. As you can see, there was a strong theatrical element um, in young Wilfred Owen. He clearly enjoyed frightening his two brothers and his sister with gothic ghost stories, um, perhaps because to some extent he had, he had been frightened himself. And he hadn't been writing poetry for very long when that hell of which his mother spoke found its way into his poems. Leaving his um, uh, school in 1911, he went to work as a lay assistant to the Vicar of Dunsdon, a little village outside Gloucestershire, where, um, outside uh, Reading, sorry, where a year later there took place the double funeral of a mother and her child. Owen's reaction to this village tragedy prompted a poem more poignant and genuine than anything he had managed before. Um, even so, it's not by uh, any real standard a good poem, but it's very interesting, and I would like to read you the first and the last stanzas. Deep under turfy grass and heavy clay, they laid her bruised body and the child. Poor victims of a swift mischance were they, adown death's trapdoor suddenly beguiled. I, weeping not as others, but heart wild affirmed to heaven, that even love's fierce flame must fail beneath the chill of this cold shame. And there stood one child with them, whose pale brows wore beauty like our mother Eve's, whom seeing I could not choose, but undo all my vows, and cry that it were well that human being and birth and death should be, just for the freeing of one such face from chaos' murky womb. For hell's reprieve is worth not this one bloom. As you see, not a good poem, but an interesting one in that we can see the future author of poems like Miners and Strange Meeting standing on the brink of the grave, speaking of heaven and hell, and more intensely aware of hell. In January 1913, a surge of revivalist fervour swept the parish of Dunsdon, forcing Owen to recognise that his belief in evangelical religion was a good deal less strong than his belief in literature. He had to explain this to the vicar and was sternly interviewed on a number of occasions. Uh, it's clear that many texts were quoted and it may have been the vicar who drew Owen's attention to the epistle of St. Jude. A thunderous denunciation of certain men crept in unaware among the faithful, filthy dreamers who defile the flesh and corrupt the church. These are described as raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Remember that phrase, the blackness of darkness forever, it will come back.
A few months later, when Owen had left Dunstan and recovered from what I think we would now probably call a nervous breakdown, he began an untitled poem uh, that opened, O world of many worlds, O life of lives, what centre hast thou? Where am I? O whither is it thy fierce onrush drives? Fight I, or drift, or stand, or fly? In a later stanza, he sees himself on rushing as a meteor through darkness in company with others. This is the track reserved for my endeavour. Spanless the erring way I wend. Blackness of darkness is my mead for ever, and barren plunging without end. In defiance of the Bible and the Church, darkness is now welcomed as the environment proper to a poet. The track reserved for his poetic endeavour is that of a wandering star or meteor, fast, eccentric, lone, warning the earth of wider ways unknown and rousing men with heavenly fears. Again, remember that word, warning, because that too returns. As the spring of 1913 drew into summer, he several times bicycled to the archaeological site of the Roman city of Uriconium, uh, just outside Shrewsbury, bicycling with George Fox's paperback guide to the city in his pocket, and I think probably a poem of Hausmann's in his head, a poem beginning, On Wenlock Edge, the woods in trouble, his forest feast the reek in heaves, the gale it plies the saplings double, and thick on seven snow the leaves. Twould blow like this through Holt and Hanger, when Uricon the city stood. Tis the old wind in the old anger, but then it threshed another wood. And the poem ends, The gale it plies the saplings double, It blows so hard twill soon be gone. Today the Roman and his trouble are ashes under Uricon. In Fox's Guide to Uriconium, Uricon, Uriconium, it's the, the same city, Owen read, and I quote, that the city and its inhabitants perished by fire and sword. Everywhere where the earth which covers its remains is turned over, it's found to be black from the burning, and plain traces of a massacre of the citizens showed themselves when the ruins amongst which the visitor strays were excavated. Skeletons of men, women and children lay amongst the blackened walls. In their terror, some of the unhappy people had sought refuge in the hollow floor of the baths. The dark and narrow hiding place did not avail to save the fugitives, for the beams of the blazing roofs blocked all way of escape, and they perished, stifled by the smoke of the burning building. Fox refers to an old Welsh poem which he says describes in vivid language the destruction of a city on the Welsh border and the slaughter of the chief to whom the city belonged. This mention of a poem that the guide calls the death song of Uriconium 
may have given Owen the idea for a poem of his own. He called it Uriconium and Ode, and I'd like to read you one of its eight stanzas, a stanza that draws on detail from the archaeological museum at the site. Well, here lie remnants from a banquet table, oysters and marrow bones and seeds of grape, the statement of whose age must sound a fable, and Samian jars, whose sheen and flawless shape look fresh from potter's mould, plasters with Roman finger marks impressed, bracelets that from the warm Italian arm might seem to be scarce cold, and spears, the same that pushed the Cymru west, unblunted yet, with tools of forge and farm abandoned, as a man in sudden fear drops what he holds to help his swift career. For sudden was Rome's flight and wild the alarm, the Saxon shock was like Vesuvius's qualm. In an important sense, this is Owen's first war poem. The compassionate awareness of the victims' bodies, so prominent a feature of the later and greater work, enables him to feel those plasters with Roman finger marks impressed. Bracelets that from the warm Italian arm might seem to be scarce cold. And it sharpens his perceptions of the weapons, spears unblunted, yet spears that would be blunted as they struck those bodies. Euriconium and Ode anticipates the later and greater poems in a more mysteriously prophetic way. As the 20-year-old poet stares in imagine, descends in imagination into the grave of the city and its slaughtered inhabitants, he says, Ruins on England's heart press heavily. The earth is seen metaphorically as a threatened human body. Many of the later war poems involve a descent into wounded earth, trench, grave, hell. Probably within weeks of writing Euriconium, Owen heard he had failed to win a scholarship to university. He left Dunstan and he left England to teach English, English in France and was in France at the outbreak of war in August 1914. Writing then to his mother in terms that now seem rather surprising. The war, he writes, affects me less than it ought. But I can do no service to anybody by agitating for news or making dole over the slaughter. I feel my own life all the more precious and more dear in the presence of this deflowering of Europe. While it is true that the guns will effect a little useful weeding, I am furious with chagrin to think that the minds which were to have excelled the civilization of 10,000 years are being annihilated, and bodies, the product of eons of natural selection, melted down to pay for political statues. Phrases like a little useful weeding now make us wince, but we must remember that almost no one in 1914 foresaw the horrors that would follow. 
Owen saw further than many. And in a poem he started about this time, um, uh, shows this. Um, the poem is a sonnet uh, called 1914. It begins, The war broke, war broke, and now the winter of the world with perishing great darkness closes in. Great darkness has become an image of war. Having already decided that darkness was the poet's true environment, he seems to have perceived as, since, as early as 1914 that the particular kind of darkness reserved for his own endeavour was to be the darkness of war. In September 1915, he returned to England and joined up in the Artist Rifles. Throughout 1916, he was in training, and then in the first days of 1917, he was plunged into the horrors of the Battle of the Somme. As he wrote to his mother of one episode, my dugout held 25 men tight-packed. Water filled it to a depth of one or two feet, leaving, say, four feet of air. One entrance had been blown in and blocked. So far, the other remained. The Germans knew we were staying there and decided we shouldn't. Those 50 hours were the agony of my happy life. Every ten minutes on Sunday afternoon seemed an hour. I nearly broke down and let myself drown in the water that was now slowly rising over my knees. Towards six o'clock, when I suppose you would be going to church, the shelling grew less intense and less accurate, so that I was mercifully helped to do my duty and crawl, wade, climb and flounder over no man's land to visit my other post. It took me half an hour to move about 150 yards. In the platoon on my left, the sentries over the dugout were blown to nothing. One of these poor fellows was my first servant, whom I rejected. If I had kept him, he would have lived. The sentries don't do, uh, for servants don't do sentry duty. I kept my own sentries halfway down the stairs during the more terrific bombardment. In spite of this, one lad was blown down, and I'm afraid, blinded. Two things to notice here, well, several things to notice, but two are, first of all, the appalling polarity of uh, the water rising in the trench on the Western Front and his mother going to church. The polarity, in England, you could hear, they could hear the, the sound of the guns on the Western Front um, and the discrepancy between the guns on the one side and the church bells ringing on the other um, is very piercing, I think. And then... We must remember that sentry who again will return. With a reference in the same letter to the Pilgrim's Progress, read beside his parents' sitting room fire, Owen continues his description of the battlefield. It is like the eternal place of gnashing of teeth. The slough of despond could be contained in one of its crater holes, 
the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah could not light a candle to it to find the way to Babylon the fallen. It is pockmarked like a body of foulest disease and its odour is the breath of cancer. Throughout April, Owen was engaged in fierce fighting. On the 1st of May, he was seen by his commanding officer to be behaving strangely. His condition was diagnosed as shell shock, and he was sent home to Craig Lockhart War Hospital, where in August he knocked on the door of another patient, Captain Siegfried Sassoon. Under his arm, Owen carried copies of the old Huntsman and other poems, Sassoon's first collection of war poems, which he wanted uh, the older man to sign. Inspired by this book, and encouraged by Sassoon's marvellously constructive criticism, Owen found a language for his own experience. It was probably in August that he read the anonymous prefatory note to the anthology Poems of Today, 1916, which began like this. And I'd like you to imagine that you have returned from the front uh, seeing the most awful things, and you come back to England, and you find in 1917 you read this preface to a book of poems. This book has been compiled in order that boys and girls already perhaps familiar with the great classics of the English speech, may also know something of the poetry of their own day. Most of the writers are living, and the rest are still vivid memories among us. While one of the youngest, almost as these words are written, has gone singing to lay down his life for his country's cause. There is no arbitrary isolation of one theme from another. They mingle and interpenetrate throughout to the music of Pan's flute and of love's viol and the bugle call of endeavour and the passing bell of death. It's not difficult, I think, to imagine someone who had seen young men not singing to lay down their lives, but screaming to hold their intestines in their ribcage, sitting down to write, What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning, save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells, and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes, the pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. Those who die like cattle in a slaughterhouse die in such numbers that there's no time to give them the trappings of the Christian funeral that Owen remembers from his Dunstan days. 
Instead, they receive a brutal parody of such a service. The stuttering rifles praying, presumably, that they will kill them. The choirs of shells wailing as they hunt them down. The bugles may sound the last post for them, but they had previously called them to the colours in those same sad shires. And so bitterly but obliquely, Owen assigns to church and state responsibility for their deaths. What we call the turn at the end of the first eight lines, the middle of a sonnet, a Petrarchan sonnet, you get the turn, uh, in this case a white line. Think of that white line as the, as the channel. You cross the channel and the second part of the poem, the sestet, the last six lines, opens with a question paralleling the first, a question asked of those in England. The first part is set in France, the second part is set in England. What um, candles may be held to speed them all? It's a gentler question than what passing bells for these who die as cattle, preparing for the gentler answer that instead of the parodic rituals offered by rifle, shell, and bugle, those who love the soldiers will mark their deaths with observances more heartfelt, more permanent than those prescribed by convention. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. Of course, the, the pall that the uh, soldier expects will cover his coffin is the pall we see on the television endlessly, the Union Jack covering the, the coffin. In this case, they are, there aren't enough coffins, there aren't enough flags to go round, so the only pall these men will have is their memories will be contained in the heads of the women who remember them, the mothers, the girlfriends, the wives, and their white foreheads will be the pall that will cover the memory of these soldiers. And whereas the flag would normally cover the coffin for an hour or two, in this case, the pall of these soldiers will last as long as these women retain their memories. Their flowers, the tenderness of patient minds. They don't have flowers, there aren't flowers for the coffin, but the patient minds that remember them, these are their minds. And instead of the, um, uh, the blinds or the curtains that will be drawn in the front room of many houses when there was a body being laid out there, um, in this case, um, they, the soldiers will be, their deaths will be marked by the dust coming down for all those who remember them, rather than in the front rooms where the curtains will be drawn for a fortnight. So um, he's making a very um, interesting and original distinction between the normal observances followed at the death of a, of a person and then the, the deaths, the unmarked deaths of these soldiers who die like cattle. Other poems of this period spring from a similarly angry response to an earlier text. The poem Dulcet de Coram Est was originally addressed to Jesse Pope. 
She was the author of numerous children's books before the war, and from 1914 she had uh, conjured a sterner music from her lyre. And one can imagine Owen's reaction to her variation of the Who's for Tennis formula in the jaunty little poem that found its way into a newspaper, beginning, Who's for the trench? Are you, my laddie? Who'll follow the French? Will you, my laddie? Who's fretting to begin? Who's going to win? And who wants to save his skin? Do you, my laddie? Some such doggerel would seem to provoke Owen's horrendous illustration of the Latin tag quotation um, from Horace's Odes, so often quoted by writers of Miss Pope's persuasion, not only writers, it should be said, but by um, clergymen from the pulpit, from journalists in their editorials. Dulce et decorum est. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Owen shows how sweet and fitting it is. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we curse through sludge. Till on the haunting flak flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. This picture, this exemplum, as the medieval rhetoricians would have called it, is followed by a caption, or a moralitas, the medieval rhetoricians would have called it, of passionate indignation, as the poet who loved children addresses himself with superb rhetorical suspension, holding back the main clause to the children's poet who exhorted such children to play the game. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. In his book, Shurston's Progress, Sassoon described the knights at Craig Lockhart, their hospital, like this. One lay awake and listened to feet padding along passages which smelt of stale cigarette smoke, 
for the nurses couldn't prevent insomnia-ridden officers from smoking half the night in their bedrooms, though the locks had been removed from all doors. One became conscious that the place was full of men, whose slumbers were morbid and terrifying, men muttering uneasily or suddenly crying out in their sleep. Around me was that underworld of dreams haunted by submerged memories of warfare and its intolerable shocks and self-lacerating failures to achieve the impossible. By daylight, each mind was a sort of aquarium for the psychopath, that's the psychiatrist, for the psychiatrist to study. In the daytime, sitting in a sunny room, a man could diagnose phobias and uh, conflicts and formulate them in scientific terminology. But by night, each man was back in his doomed sector of a horror-stricken front line, where the panic and stampede of some ghastly experience was reenacted among the livid faces of the dead. No doctor could save him then, when he became the lonely victim of his dream disasters and delusions. The realities of battle, banished from Owen's waking mind, now erupt into his dreams. Dreams and poems alike, haunted by tormented eyes. Those, I think, of his blinded sentry. Discharged from Craig Lockhart in November 1917, he spent Christmas with his regiment in Scarborough, and there he read Henri Barbousse's remarkable book, Le Feu. Um, Owen read the English translation called Under Fire. It's one of the most brilliant and searing accounts of uh, life and death on the Western Front. And it made an immediate impact on Owen as it had already made an impact on Sassoon, and its influence can be detected, detected in Owen's poems of this period. One such death appears in the transformation of this sentence from Barbusi's chapter 9. The soldier held his peace. In the distance he saw the night as they would pass it, cramped up, trembling with vigilance in the deep darkness at the bottom of the listening hole, whose ragged jaws showed in black outline all around whenever a gun hurled its dawn into the sky. Owen expanded those sentences into a vision of one of the many mouths of hell. Cramped in that funneled hole, they watched the dawn open a jagged rim around, a yawn of death's jaws which had all but swallowed them, stuck in the bottom of his throat of phlegm. They were in one of the many mouths of hell, not seen of seers in visions, only felt as teeth of traps, when bones and the dead are smelt under the mud, where long ago they fell, mixed with the sour, sharp odour of the shell. In this poem, we can again see Owen reacting against the work, against the vision of another poet. Here it's Tennyson and the charge of the Light Brigade. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. I would like to know whether Owen was 
consciously correcting Tennyson's vision of battle, or whether, as I suspect, it was an unconscious recollection. An important point is that bodily entry into the earth, as here described, becomes a major theme of the mature poems. Artair, Asleep, and Miners, which I should like to look at in some detail. On the 12th of January, 1918, there was a pit explosion in the Staffordshire Colliery, in which 155 men and boy miners were killed. Owen read the newspaper accounts and shortly afterwards wrote to his mother that he had written a poem on the uh, colliery disaster, but he added, I get mixed up with the war at the end. Well, before the fire in his grate, which smoked horribly in the wind, he wrote Miners. There was a whispering in my hearth, a sigh of the coal, grown wistful of a former earth it might recall. There's something curious about the personification of this coal that whispers and sighs, grown wistful of a former earth it might recall. I listened for a tale of leaves and smothered ferns, frond forests and the low sly lives before the fawns. My fire might show steam phantoms simmer from time's old cauldron before the birds made nests in summer or men had children. The peaceful evocations of these stanzas are now rudely undercut by the blunt conjunction, but. But the coals were murmuring of their mine, and moans down there of boys that slept wry sleep, and men writhing for air. And I saw white bones in the cinder shard, bones without number, many the muscled bodies charred, and few remember. The poet remembers Lancashire miners who had been in the first platoon he ever commanded, and those other miners who drove their perilous saps or tunnels beneath the surface of no man's land to mine the enemy trenches. I thought of some who worked dark pits of war and died digging the rock where death reputes peace lies indeed. There's a disturbing and surely intentional irony, ambiguity about that word lies. Peace lies indeed. But the thought of peace introduces another vision. Comforted years will sit soft-chaired in rooms of amber. The years will stretch their hands, well cheered by our lives' ember. The poet now numbers himself with those who worked dark pits of war and died. The centuries will burn rich loads with which we groaned, whose warmth shall lull their dreaming lids while songs are crooned. But they will not dream of us, poor lads, left in the ground. How different from his own tormented nightmares will be the peaceful dreams of those who, without knowing what they do, warm their hands by our lives' ember. It was probably before that same fire that Owen drafted his more famous vision of the hell where youth and laughter go. The title and the theme of his poem Strange Meeting are taken 
from these lines in Shelley's poem, The Revolt of Islam. And one whose spear had pierced me leaned beside, with quivering lips and humid eyes, and all seemed like some brothers on a journey wide gone forth, whom now strange meeting did befall in a strange land. As editor of the Craig Lockhart War Hospital magazine, The Hydra, Owen had published Sassoon's poem, The Rear Guard, in which the speaker, groping along the tunnel step by step, saw someone lie humped at his feet, and stooped to give the sleeper's arm a tug. The sleeper proved to be dead, and the narrator climbed through darkness to the twilight air, unloading hell behind him, step by step. This poem, and a soldier's terrible cry from Barbusi's under fire, when I'm sleeping, I dream that I'm killing him over again, may also have contributed something to Owen's nightmare vision. And, as in minors, the dying fall of the rhymes underscores the tragic unfulfillment that is the theme of strange meeting, all, another, all these soldiers whose lives are unfulfilled. It seemed that out of battle I escaped down some profound dull tunnel, long since scooped through granites which titanic wars had groined. Yet also there encumbered sleepers groaned, too fast in thought or death to be bestirred. Then as I probed them, one sprang up, and stared with piteous recognition in fixed eyes, lifting distressful hands as if to bless. And by his smile I knew that sullen hall. By his dead smile I knew we stood in hell. The vision of a subterranean hell, its many mouths agape for the unwary, can be traced back through miners, through the fragment cramped in that funnelled hole, the Dunsdon elegy deep under turfy grass and heavy clay, back through Uriconium to the Calvinist hell of which Owen had heard at his mother's knee. These descents into the underworld have a curious common denominator. The Dunsdon elegy for the mother and child speaks of chaos's murky womb. The landscape of the show is said to be pitted with great pox and scabs of plagues, and smell came up from those foul openings as out of mouths or deep wounds deepening. In the fragment cramped in that funneled hole, the soldiers watched the yawn of death's jaws, which had all but swallowed them, stuck in the bottom of his throat of phlegm. And in strange meeting, the speaker escapes down a tunnel through granites which titanic wars had groined. In each case, the earth is described in terms of the human body, and in three out of four instances, there's a marked sense of physical loathing. This comes strangely, tragically, from a poet whose early poems are full of lyrical descriptions of beautiful bodies and celebrations of the natural world. In September 1918, Owen returned to the front, under no illusions about what awaited him. Before going into the trenches, he wrote to Sassoon, 
Serenity Shelley never dreamed of crowns me. Will it last when I shall have gone into caverns and abysmals such as he never reserved for his worst demons? Once again, his image is of hell. That September, remembering his soldier blinded in January 1917, he wrote The Century. We'd found an old Bosch dugout, and he knew, and gave us hell, for shell on frantic shell lit full on top, but never quite burst through. Rain, guttering down in waterfalls of slime, kept slush waist-high, and rising hour by hour, and choked the steps too thick with clay to climb. What murk of air remained, stank old, and sour with fumes of whiz-bangs, and the smell of men who had lived their years, and left their curse in the den, if not their corpses. There we heard it from the blast of whiz-bangs, but one found our door at last, buffeting eyes and breath, snuffing the candles, and thud, flump, thud, down the steep steps came thumping and splashing in the flood, deluging muck the sentry's body. Then his rifle, handles of old Bosch bombs, and mud in ruck on ruck. We dressed him up for dead, until he whined, Oh, sir, my eyes, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind. Coaxing, I held a flame against his lids, and said if he could see the least blurred light, he was not blind, in time he'd get all right. I can't, he sobbed. Eyeballs, huge, bulge-like squids, watch my dreams still. Yet I forgot him there in posting next for duty, and sending a scout to beg a stretcher somewhere, and floundering about to other posts under the shrieking air. Those other wretches, how they bled and spewed, and one who would have drowned himself for good, I try not to remember those things now. Let dread hark back for one word only. How half listening to that sentry's moans and jumps, and the wild chattering of his shivered teeth, renewed most horribly whenever crumps pummeled the roof and slogged the air beneath. Through the dense din, I say, we heard him shout, I see your lights. But ours had long gone out. The torrential movement of this poem makes it seem simpler, more straightforward than it is. Consider its opening. We'd found an old Bosch dugout, and he knew and gave us hell. The slang figure of speech conceals the recurrent metaphor. Similarly, when he speaks of one who would have drowned himself for good, he means more than once and for all, and may well have in mind the moment when death by drowning, remember that 1917 letter to his mother, when death by drowning seemed to him good and preferable to living. In his celebrated draft preface, Owen wrote, All a poet can do today is warn. Remember that 1912 poem in which he spoke of the meteor warning men with heavenly fears. Warning was what his poems set out to do. 
That is why the true poets must be truthful. It sounds so easy, but it's not easy to tell the truth in a poem, especially a truth from which the memory recoils. He tells the truth when he says, I try not to remember these things now. But when he tries to forget them, eyeballs, huge, bulge-like squids, watch my dreams still. In those dreams, the horror is reborn, the reality of battle reshaped to the dimensions of the poem, poems to which we, his readers, owe more than to any others, our vision of the reality of the Western Front, of hell on earth. Thank you very much. Thank you.